So good morning, and uh, uh, as John mentioned, so with, with like a few other folks, I've been at Greenfields for the last couple of even nights, uh, evenings. And just to give you an update, and actually an answer to your prayers, uh, it's just an astonishing place. It's another world when you go in there, full of color and, uh, and life and thousands and thousands of young people, and depending on where you go, some very, very, very loud music. <laughs> Uh, I was walking past some of the tents and thinking, my ribcage is resonating as I just walk past these tents. Never mind, go in. Just, just, just shaking. Uh, and uh, uh, it's, it's a wonderful place, but it's also a difficult place. And that's really where the church, the churches, have come in and done some really fantastic work. There's a team there right now. I'm really impressed that some of you have come from the, from the 12 p.m. to 8 a.m. shift, midnight to 8 a.m. shift. They're here today. Commitment. What commitment is that? But the sort of people that have been coming in, they've been coming in with, uh, with cuts and bruises, coming in for a chat, coming in actually quite often having taken substances, and we just have to sit them down and hydrate them and give them time and call the ambulance sometimes, who will then work with them and help them. Uh, coming, we've taken people, got people home, because some of the kids have just said, I don't want to be here anymore, it's a crazy place, and it's, and it's night in the middle of the night, how do I get out? How do I go home? Just finally getting them to stations and things like that at the dead of night. Um, but the, the fantastic thing is, despite the, that, and, and there was a tragedy on Friday, despite that, there's been some fantastic God conversations. People come again saying, what are you doing? What, what, what? Is this a church? What's the church doing here? Sometimes in, in interesting language, but just, you know, what is, what's going on here? Some come in and say, well, I don't believe because, you know, I believe in science. It's a great conversation. I don't believe because of what happened to my auntie. Why did God, why would God let somebody suffer like that? That's a common one, the problem of suffering. It's, it's a great opening for a conversation. So some really great work being done. Please continue to pray for the folks there today. Going tonight, George is going today. He's going to have an incredible time. Now, he'll need your prayers as well, but thanks for that. So let's turn to this. So if I can have my uh, first slide up, please. So you may, uh, you may be familiar with this chap, I don't know, he's called Ian Paisley. He was very famous sort of 20 years ago. The first first minister uh, of Northern Ireland and a well-known politician, but also a reverend, a minister. And he was well-known for his hard-hitting rhetoric. He didn't pull his punches and he didn't take prisoners. Well, apparently this happened. One Sunday morning he was in his church preaching on the end times. And as he preached on the nature of, preaching also on the nature of hell, and he got more and more worked up and, and more and more passionate and louder and louder. And he goes on, he was quoting, and there'll be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. At which point a lady in the front row says, Reverend Paisley, I haven't got any teeth. <laughs> to which Reverend Paisley, drawing himself up to his full height, says, Madam, teeth will be provided. <laughs> so... We come to this topic, which is an interesting topic, and we've, we've heard about it today somewhat, the end times. And uh, what do we make of this? This passage on, this famous passage on the coming of Christ. It's packed with vivid, colorful imagery, isn't it? All kinds of symbolism, all kinds of, of amazing uh, things happening in the sky. But what is it actually about? Well, uh, let's just step back for a minute and just remind ourselves what this letter is about. So this letter was written to a church, a small church in northern Greece almost 2,000 years ago in a town called Thessalonica or Thessaloniki. 
And um, Paul visited the church. He'd founded the church there. He was driven out by a riot. uh, And he couldn't go back to find out how the church is doing. But he sends his friends, Silas and Timothy, who go back. And Timothy and Silas bring back a good report uh, and some questions. They're asking about these things for which Paul, Silas, and Timothy respond with this letter that we've been reading for the last six weeks. And today, we're looking at this question, what will actually happen when Christ returns? And there are some very dramatic verses that John read to us. There are trumpets, there are loud shouts in the sky, there are God riding on the clouds, there are people being snatched up in the air. Um, And it's a famous passage. It's it's the so-called rapture passage used by, uh, actually quite common, um, in, in, the, in the southern U.S., southern parts of the United States. At the end of the age, this passage says, believers will rise in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It, it says there'll be a separation, literally a snatching away between believers and unbelievers, including their loved ones. And this idea, this, uh, I, this word rapture, which has taken uh, hold in some areas, uh, particularly in the U.S., uh, that idea is very much based on this passage and perhaps one of the passages in the New Testament in Matthew. But what is Paul actually talking about, really? What is this thing that people talk about when they talk about rapture? Well, uh, is it really going to happen like that? Let's just go back and read some of the words again and then ask the question, what is this about? So I'm just going to read uh, a shorter passage. I think it's four verses Uh, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that John read to us. Let's just take it in again. For we believe that Christ, that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Well, on a face reading, it seems pretty clear. And actually, it becomes clear if we understand the text as it was meant to be understood, as it was written. It does have potential for, calling unhel- for causing unhelpful divisions in churches. I had a conversation with Jonathan about it. His suggestion was to read N.T. Wright, who is a well-known UK theologian and writer, very respected. So I did, read some others as well, and actually listened to two podcasts, two 90-minute podcasts on this passage, one of which was a debate I'll try and pull some of that into this next 20 minutes today. But one uh, key uh, idea to get hold of is a lot of this is cultural imagery based on Old Testament images. Old Testament, what we call motifs from the Old Testament or images. I'm not going to go through them all, but let me summarize them by just taking one of those images in the passage. And it's the image of clouds. And uh, it's said in there, the Lord will come riding on the cloud. Now, we in the UK, we're not that surprised by clouds, are we? It's not a big deal if we see a cloud. It's going to rain again, or it's just going to carry on being grey. But in some parts of the world, particularly uh, Israel, Palestine, Turkey, Greece, clouds are not that common. 
They can be quite unusual depending on the season, or very unusual. In the Bible, clouds are often used to indicate something unusual, something momentous is occurring. doesn't necessarily mean a literal cloud. Clouds in the Bible are often used to, to invoke, to bring to mind God's presence, but not always literally. Here's just three examples from the Old Testament. There are loads of examples. Here are clouds as symbols used for God's magnificent presence. So Psalm 10 says, He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. Or Isaiah says in 19, chapter 19, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. And Daniel says in chapter 7, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. That is a passage that Paul is is making reference directly to. Mostly they are not literal clouds. Mostly. They can be literal clouds, of course, in the Bible. I think most of us, I believe, that when God rescued the Israelites from Egypt and went before them, he went before them as as a pillar of cloud. Probably a literal cloud. But often they're not. And our mistake whether they're literal or not, is to focus on the images, or in this case, on the cloud. We're going to see a cloud. Rather than the point, which is God's momentous presence. That's what Paul is talking about. There are other symbolic images in this passage. The, the, loud, uh, the loud shouts, uh, the trumpet call. Have a look at Exodus 19. Paul is drawing direct reference to when Moses, coming down from Mount Sinai, says there's a great trumpet call. He's drawing a direct reference to Moses. There is other symbolism here. Probably not literal, but, the, but to focus on the images is the mistake. Uh, and here is one comment uh, that N.T. Wright makes on this. He says, Paul isn't saying that all these things will literally happen like this. Rather, we simply don't have the language for the return of Jesus. We run out of words for how this will happen. We, don't, we can't explain how We don't have the language. So we can only resort to mixed metaphors. So says N.T. Wright, it will be something like a great shout, something like a great trumpet call, something like God riding on a cloud, because we don't have any other words. Importantly, unlike us, first century believers would have understood that. They would have got that, because they were completely plugged in to the Old Testament in the way that often we are not. They would have listened to this and said, oh yeah, we know that image. Yeah, we know that. Paul is, Paul's playing the oldies. We know these. There's Isaiah. I recognize that. And that's David in the Psalms. And there's Daniel chapter 7. We know these images. It clicked for them immediately. Whereas for us, it may not click so easily. And we may simply get caught up in the imagery. There's going to be a cloud. There has to be a cloud. There has to be a trumpet as uh, rapture theology takes those words very literally. One last thing I'd say about rapture theology, it is relatively new. It's not been around that long. It's not traditional. Rapture theology actually uh, arose in the 19th century with a guy called uh, Nelson Darby. Nelson Darby was an English uh, cleric, an English minister, who had a series of visions on which he based this whole rapture idea and what we call dispensationalism. In the US, it caught on in, in a very big way. 
but it's not actually a traditional, traditional th- church thinking. N.T. Wright again. Uh, I think I moved on right. Little did Paul know that his colourful metaphors for Jesus' second coming would be misunderstood two millennia later. Most mistakenly in the Left Behind series, which you may know from a series of books and films, I think from the 90s, uh, where believers are snatched up to heaven, leaving kids coming home from school to find that their parents have been taken. And there are kind of cars crashing on motorways because drivers are literally snatched up in a cloud. That's not the point. The Bible often uses symbolism and imagery. We should know that. We use symbolism and imagery. If I was to say, uh, it's raining cats and dogs to somebody from another country, they might be forgiven saying, sorry, kittens fall from the sky in the UK. No, they don't. Or my favorite example, we often use the phrase, did you see the sunrise? Did you see the sunset? Wasn't it amazing? The sun rises in the east, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. The sun doesn't move relative to the earth. It stays where it is, but the earth spins on its axis. So if someone from another, let's say another galaxy came, they might say, that's a very interesting solar system where your sun moves around the earth. No, it doesn't. It's just a phrase. And Jesus himself, of course, used imagery and symbolism and metaphors a lot. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Not literally. He said when he railed against the uh, Pharisees in Matthew 23, there's metaphor after metaphor. You're a brood of serpents. You're like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bodies. Wow. (laughs) What a metaphor. But it's not literal. What is true here, what is very true, is that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end, as the creed says. Sometimes some of these scripture passages, this one, some of the passages in Revelation, Matthew 24, they refer to events that have already happened. You have to remember when you read these, they, can be, they are past, present, and future. Revelation is past, present, and future, all at the same time. Sometimes they refer to the... Uh, The exile, 600 years before Christ, when Israel was taken into captivity. Some of the passages refer to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the destruction of the temple. And some of them do refer to the second coming of Christ. And I believe, and most of writers believe, that this passage is about the second coming of Jesus. So the return of Christ will take place, as Paul says, at the end of time or outside of time. Eternal means outside of time, not in our time. We, we might not see it until we leave this time. But it will take place. And when that event occurs, world, words will fail. We won't have the language to describe what's happening. <clears throat> but I'm going to pause here just to ask a question which I think is often asked. And it's an understandable question. And let's just look at this briefly, which is, what about everybody else? What happens to everybody else that Paul's not talking about? What about those who have never heard the gospel, who may never understand the gospel? People we know, care about, love, they may be in our families. Well, I think we need to start with the core beliefs of our Christian faith, which I think Peter summarizes very well in Acts chapter 4, where he says... There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Only the name of Jesus. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Only the name of Jesus. 
there are still different ways of understanding that. And I'm going to give you two examples. And they're both scriptural. They can both be defended from the Bible. On the one hand, some say, if you haven't made your decision for Jesus in this world, in this life, you are consigned to some kind of existence without God forever, for billions of years. Whether it's Ian Paisley's hell or not, I don't know. But actually, it's all about your personal decision to follow Jesus in this life. That's what we need to do. And that's very defensible from Scripture. On the other hand, <clears throat> and there are Scriptures to demonstrate this as well, we should not limit the work of Christ to our own understanding. That the work of Jesus may reach people in ways that we have not understood. And I believe that. One example what about all the children and babies who today are going to die? What about them? I believe that God somehow takes the work of Christ and applies it to them without them being able to articulate faith at all. I think most of us would believe that. What about the billions of people who died before Jesus? What about them? Very interestingly, the, uh, uh, the uh, traditional um, creeds of the church have a line there which people have drawn doctrine from. The creed which says uh, of Jesus, he was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to the dead for those three days. On the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. And they believe that there's a belief, which I think is fair, that there's a post-mortem opportunity for those people who never had the chance of hearing that. What about in our, in our own time? Just let's just think, for example, of the young uh, Muslim lad or a young person in, in the mountains of Iraq or Afghanistan, lives the, uh, as good a life as he can, and at the age of 17, let's say, he's killed in a horrible accident, or more likely by a NATO missile attack. Do we really think that God then says, for billions of years, you now have to suffer separation in some kind of hell for billions of years with no hope of redemption, no hope of ever repenting, of ever of being, coming back? And what about us? If when we are with Jesus, do, will we somehow, somehow stop caring about these people? It's a difficult question. There are different answers. And this, this answer says, well, God can take the work of Christ in ways we've not yet understood. But we have to, in our time, we have to fall back and trust that God will do right. Will not the judge of the earth do right, as uh, Abraham says in Genesis 18? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? We don't understand. Our understanding doesn't go that far. Understanding doesn't go that far. We really don't know how this works. But I think it's an important question, and we shouldn't duck the question. Let's talk about it. Come, come and talk about it. Okay, so two truths so far. Christ will return as part of God's creation, firstly. And secondly, there is no other name under heaven by which, given to men by which we must be saved. But then thirdly and lastly, and practically, what do we take away from a passage like this? We've talked about some theology and different views, but what do we actually take away? What can we, what can we do uh, that actually will help us as we walk away this morning? Well, this passage, first of all, reminds us, does it not, of the Christian hope, enduring confidence in the promises of God, Christian hope. It reminds us that God reconciles, will reconcile all things to himself through the death of Jesus. 
that God will make right everything that has previously gone wrong with this world. That that the Christian hope is trusting that God will do what he has promised based on the fact that he did what he promised in sending Jesus. Enduring confidence, Christian hope, enduring confidence in the promises of God is based on the events of a single weekend in history, a momentous weekend, Good Friday to Easter Sunday. And here is a confirmation in this passage of Christ's return. Albeit using symbolic, metaphoric language, we can trust these words. This is our Christian hope. This encourages us believers, but, and it's a big but, that's not the point of 1 Thessalonians. That's not the point of this letter. Not to sit back complacently and to say, I'm all right. I don't need to really work. I don't need to do anything. I've got my personal salvation project sorted out. Thank you very much. That is not the point of 1 Thessalonians. This was probably, this passage, just the answer to one question out of several from the Thessalonians. And if we just home in on this, we miss the point. 1 Thessalonians isn't about waiting for heaven. The Bible isn't about waiting for heaven. Our faith isn't about waiting for heaven. The Bible never says, just hang around and heaven will happen. Never says anything like that. Rather, we are heralds. We are like heralds, the front messengers of the kingdom in this world here and now. We live in a very unique time in the overlap of the ages. If you like, we live in this gap between Jesus' resurrection and Jesus coming again in the in-between times. And we see both kingdoms, God's, God's kingdom coming in and the kingdom of this world which is still here. The overlap of the ages. God's kingdom has already started, but it's not completed. It won't complete until Christ comes again. So we see this kingdom of God and kingdom of this world at the same time. The overlapping in our age. We see both sides. God's kingdom and the kingdom of this world. And we experience both of them on a daily basis, don't we? God's kingdom and the kingdom of this world. We're filled with God's spirit, the kingdom of God. And yet, evil can still attack us, the kingdom of this world. We have victory over death, and yet we will still die and probably be ill in this world. The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world. We're full, we know we have full forgiveness, and yet we're not made perfect. The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world. And our task, our privilege, our unique responsibility as a people who live in the in-between times is to be bringers of the kingdom of God into the kingdom of this world. But we so often we reduce our faith to this one idea. It's all about a ticket to heaven. That's all that this is really about. Make sure you get your ticket to heaven and then don't do anything. That's not our faith. We focus so much on what happens now, we forget about... Sorry, we focus so much on what will happen then in the future, we forget about what's happening now. The Christian faith is not simply about what happens when you die. That part's great, but there's something important here about living a meaningful purposeful directional life about bringing God's kingdom into this world remember the theme of 1 Thessalonians we've been showing this image for several weeks now hope and holiness in a hostile world here and now focus on living a holy life now there was complacency in Thessalonica There was a tendency to be complacent and to sit back. And we too can be complacent. But we need to focus on what's happening right now and not be simply 
carried away into the future. A very famous preacher who, are, who you may have heard of called Jonathan Bramwell said the following. <clears throat> People who are waiting for Jesus and not doing anything for Jesus in the meantime is a contradiction. He's right. People who are waiting for Jesus and not doing anything for Jesus in the meantime is a contradiction. We have a missional task to be bringers of God's kingdom, the kingdom of God, into the kingdom of this world. Pulling, enticing, attracting, teasing, dragging God's kingdom into the kingdom of this world. It's like, so, so it becomes for people like buried treasure, the kingdom of God. What, is this a church? What are you doing here in this tent? Like finding a buried treasure in a place you didn't expect to find it. Like finding a pearl that's worth more than anything you were looking for. Like a, a, a tiny seed that grows into a mighty, momentous tree. Or like the tiniest amount of yeast that transforms everything around it and changes it. That's what we are to be. Bringing the kingdom of God into the kingdom of this world. And whether that is alleviating poverty, befriending a stranger, welcoming someone on the margins of society, welcoming someone into a tent, or sharing our faith, sharing the hope that's within us, they are all ways of bringing the kingdom of God into the kingdom of this world. That is the task given to us in our time, not to sit around waiting to us, we who live in these in-between times, bringing the kingdom of God into the kingdom of this world. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you, Lord, that uh, our future, Lord, is guaranteed with you. And we have this certain hope, enduring confidence in your promises. And we don't uh, minimize that. And yet, Lord, we know you don't want us just to stare at that and not be, not be involved in the world around us. So make us, Lord, salt and light, Lord. Make us bringers, Lord, of that tiny seed, planters of that seed, bringers of that yeast, Lord, transforming people, situations around us at work, in our streets, in, in our conversations, just in small ways. Make us bringers of kindness, Lord. All of us can do that this week. Somehow, Lord, help us, Lord, to be those heralds, bringing your kingdom into the kingdom of this world. And thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. Thank you, Lord, that we have this certain hope in you, that we can rest in that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.